You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in that Sunday morning at the Ryman there. Uh, good stuff. It's, um, I, I can see the irregularity of taking notes when I get up here. I haven't even started talking yet, taking notes on my own message, but I thought of a great line and I knew I'd forget it, so I had to write it down. Um, <laughs> And hopefully I wrote it in the right spot, because you just never know, right? Uh, I'll read it to you now. <laughs> Matthew chapter 15. Great lines are like great jokes. At least I think they're funny, and uh, no one else does. That's okay. Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read verse 21 down through the end of the chapter, verse 39. I am not going to talk at length about this whole passage this morning. I'm going to focus mostly on the first paragraph, but... We'll read the entire section together and get the sense of it here. Matthew 15, verse 21. This is God's word. And Jesus went away from there, that is Galilee, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, That's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. And Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Well, let's pray. Father, I pray now you'd help us as we look at your word. There's truth here. All of it is true. All of it is valuable and important to us. And for all of it, we need your help to see and understand and bring it to bear on our lives. So, Father, I pray that as we spend this time this morning, we would get a right sense, a right perception of Jesus, and a right sense and perception of ourselves, and that you would use your word now to change us and make us more like him. 
I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are several weeks now into a series in Matthew called Near and Far, Moving Close to Jesus. We want to move close to Jesus. That's where people flourish. Because as you move closer to Jesus, you become more like him. As you know him better, as you see him more clearly, your life will increasingly begin to resemble his. And that's a good thing because Jesus is the greatest human being that has ever lived. Jesus is the epitome of the perfect person, the perfect human being. And the more we become like him, the more we become the person God created us to be. And the remarkable thing, when you think about it, is that Jesus invites us to do this. He's not like some celebrity that's hard to approach and hard to come close to, who wants his personal space and needs you to give him a break. He says, come to me. You who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He invites us to him. And in Matthew's gospel, we see people moving towards and away from Jesus all the time. There's 12 disciples who follow him closely everywhere he goes. They're committed to him. They are staying close. There are religious leaders who come close enough, just close enough to see we don't like this guy, we don't want this guy, and they leave him alone. And then there are the crowds, always the crowds, and they are coming and they're going and they're drawing close and they're pulling away and they're trying to decide what to do with and what to make of Jesus. Well, there are, as I mentioned earlier, three paragraphs here. The second paragraph is Jesus going up on a mountain, teaching and healing, as we often see him doing in Matthew. We won't spend really much time there. The third paragraph, Jesus feeds 4,000 people with a very small amount of food. We looked at a very similar story with 5,000 people a few weeks ago. This morning, I want to focus on the first paragraph, verses 21 to 28, where we see a very unlikely person moving towards Jesus. And we see Jesus moving, it appears at least, away from everybody. It says in verse 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Last week, Jesus dealt with the religious leaders who would come from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, he hasn't gone to Jerusalem yet himself. In Matthew's gospel, we really don't see Jesus in Jerusalem, the heart of the Jewish people, the heart of the Jewish nation. We don't really see him in Matthew's gospel even go there till the last week of his life, right before he's crucified. But they come to him. They're the spokespeople for the nation and the religion. And they come to see what he's about and to confront him and his teaching. And after that happens, we see that he withdraws. And in Matthew, when Jesus withdraws, usually it's to get away from conflict, to get away from danger. Not because he's scared, but because it's just not time for that yet. That time's coming, and when the time comes, he'll embrace it, he'll go to Jerusalem, and he'll face and drink the cup that God has for him. But it's not time yet, so he withdraws from the conflict and the potential issue, it's not yet time. He draws away from the religious leaders of his own people, and he goes to the district, it says, of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are cities on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, 30 and 50 miles north of Galilee. Jesus' ministry has been focused on the Jews. 
We saw back in chapter 10, well, this will go some time back for us now, but in chapter 10, Jesus will call the 12 disciples to him. He'll send them out to do ministry, just like he's doing. And this is what he says in Matthew 10, verse 5. He says, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, our mission, our purpose, is not to the Gentiles, it's not to the Samaritans, it's to the Jews, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's where Jesus sends them. That's where he has gone. But sometimes, sometimes Jesus will take these little excursions into Gentile territory. Several years back now, uh, Kelly and I went on a cruise to Alaska, Steve and Janie. And uh, you go on these cruises, there's an itinerary, right? You get a map ahead of time. We're going here, 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 here. This is where the trip is going. But they stop off periodically. You know this if you've been on a cruise. And you can take an excursion. It's not part of the main trip. And we stopped in Juneau, Alaska, and we took a sea kayaking excursion. The sea looked a lot like a lake to me. You couldn't, it didn't, I, what I envisioned was out on the open ocean, rising swells were barely hanging on, and it looked an awful lot like a lake. But it was salt water, and I could tell the tide was going out because it was getting shallower. And we saw mountains covered with beautiful pine trees, bald eagles all around landing on the dock by us. It was a pretty neat experience. But it really wasn't the main trip. The main, that was just a supplemental thing you could do if you really wanted to do it. Jesus will take these excursions. Periodically, it's not his focus, but he'll take excursions to Gentile territory. Back in Matthew 9, he'll go to the far east side of the Sea of Galilee to a region called uh, the Gadarenes, and you'll remember he encounters there a man possessed by demons who can't be held by chains, who wanders in the graveyards and through the rocks and the hills, unrestrained and uncontrolled. And Jesus, of course, confronts him goes to cast out the demons. The demons say, please uh, send us into those pigs, which he does, and they run off a cliff. You remember the story. And Jesus will occasionally take these excursions. Later, he'll go to that, near that same area, a region called the Decapolis, the, the ten cities, predominantly Gentiles, and he'll, he'll do ministry there too. But Jesus is focused on ministry to the Jewish nation. But, but as we saw last week, as he faces conflict and confrontation from the Jewish religious leaders, he withdraws, and he goes to the district of Tyre and Sidon, way to the north and west of Israel. He is out of the country. Now, there's plenty of conflict, even at this time, between the Jews in Galilee and the Gentiles in Tyre and Sidon, all sorts of political and economic issues and conflicts. But really, the big issue is not the contemporary conflicts, but the historic ones. Because Tyre and Sidon are historic enemies of God's people. They have been enemies for centuries. It goes way back. They were wicked places. Take just a minute. Uh, keep a marker here. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28 is a, f a fairly well-known passage, or as well-known as a passage in Ezekiel might come to be. And there are are prophecies through this section of the book against various of Israel's enemies. But, but listen to this. Chapter 27 had been a prophecy against uh, Tyre as well. But listen to chapter 28, starting in verse 1. 
I'm sorry, starting in verse verse 11. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now listen to how this man is described. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. Crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You, you were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. This is addressed to the king of Tyre. Who does it sound like he's talking about? Satan. Satan. Yeah. I don't know exactly what Ezekiel has in mind, but it's not hard to see who he's alluding to. And the message is, this guy, this place, is bad. Deeply sinful. Deeply evil. These are Israel's historic enemies. These people are outside of God's covenant, outside of God's promise, outside of God's blessing. These are people destined for judgment. And that's why Jesus moved here out of the land. Think of how important the land is to God's people. Out of the land to this place, to these people, must have been startling to Jesus' disciples. He's just been in contact with the Jewish leaders. You could imagine the disciples saying, don't you think we should be setting something up with them? Figuring this all out, working it out, getting to where we need to be. But Jesus and the Jewish leaders are clearly not on the same page. They're obsessively concerned with purity and defilement and Jewishness, and Jesus just isn't, at least not in the way they are. They're concerned with the externals, and as we saw last week, what is Jesus concerned with? The heart. And now Jesus moves into one of the most unclean places a Jewish person could imagine. He moves into Gentile territory with some of Israel's oldest and most wicked enemies. Even the language Matthew uses here as he recounts this story emphasizes this. He says in verse 22, Behold a Canaanite woman. That's that's really anachronistic. Nobody was calling themselves Canaanites in the first century. That's Old Testament talk for the people of the land, the people that God had them drive out, the enemies of God's people. But this Canaanite woman says something to Jesus that none of those disciples could have expected to hear. No one would have expected to hear this kind of thing in this place from this kind of person. You know, that happens sometimes. You hear things you wouldn't expect from people and in places you wouldn't expect to hear them. My grandfather passed away this last week, Tuesday morning, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday morning. And my grandparents, for the last 40 years, have owned what they call their camp, 
which is about an hour north of where they live. They live uh, way up in the Keweenaw, you know, way up here, but that's not far enough. They needed another place further north, their camp. So they live right in Houghton, but they have their camp, which is an old house that a doctor at the Copper Falls Mining Company back in the 1800s had built. And so it's way out there, way out there in the woods, a beautiful place. They, uh, they knew the woman that owned it for several decades before they did. She passed away in the late 70s. They bought it, and it's been their camp ever since. And so that's just a place, since I was a kid, we'd go, we'd go there every year. Every summer we'd go up uh, to uh, stay with my grandparents for a week, and we'd spend, at least my dad and I would spend a few days out at the camp, and we'd work on the roof or do whatever needed to be done, and we would go there, we'd hike and do all sorts of things. It's a pretty special place for us. Well, anyway, uh, when I was, the first year I was in college, I was at Word of Life Bible Institute in upstate New York, in 80, 100 miles north of Albany, way up in the Adirondack Mountains. And uh, I was sitting in the snack shack one day uh, with a friend of mine and a couple girls and we were, that we didn't really know, and we were talking about whatever, and uh, somehow it came out that one of these girls, uh, she vacationed every year in northern Michigan. And I said, oh, well, where was that at? She said, it's really small, you probably wouldn't know it. I said, no, I know Michigan geography really well. And girls love geography, guys. And um, I said, uh, no, I'm, I know Michigan geography pretty good. Why don't you just tell me what it is? And uh, she said, well, it's just this little town way up in the Keweenaw called Eagle Harbor, which is where the camp is. And I said, ha, 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 ha. I, you, you mean Eagle Harbor where the, the Shoreline Hotel is right there where the, the harbor turns and then there's the swimming raft they put out every summer and then you go out to the, do you mean that Eagle Harbor, right? It's like, I know exactly where that is. Now she was thinking, and I understand why, there's no way here in upstate New York this guy has any idea where Eagle Harbor, Michigan, population 162 is, right? But sometimes you hear unexpected things from unexpected people in unexpected places. Jesus is in the heart of Gentile, pagan territory. And a Canaanite woman comes to him and says something that none of them could have expected. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. She calls him Lord, which, which I suppose could just be a kind of polite deference. But then she calls him Son of David, which is a Jewish term for Messiah. How does she know this? How does she know to call him that and come to him under those terms? How could she know this? You know who should have known that that's who this was? the Jewish leaders that we saw last week earlier in chapter 15. Jesus' own people, whether it was his hometown folks in Nazareth or these religious leaders that came up from Jerusalem. Think about it. The long-awaited Messiah appears before their eyes and they don't see it. They can't see it. They won't see it. But this woman, she does. Now, there's some kind of extraordinary grace at work here, and there's more coming, as we'll see in the story. And she pleads with Jesus on behalf of her daughter, who is, it says, severely oppressed by a demon. I don't know if there's a way to be mildly oppressed by a demon. But she is severely oppressed. 
I don't know what that involves or includes. I don't know how she can know that for sure. Do you remember there's another place in the Gospels where a, a parent comes and, and is concerned? It might be in the next chapter, actually, now I think about it, because it's coming soon, where a parent comes and says to Jesus, you know, my, my son has a demon and constantly throws him in the fire. That's what demons do. Their, their sole aim is to destroy. And that's the situation that this woman's child is in. It's bad news. And if you've been reading through the first 14 and a half chapters of Matthew, you know what Jesus can do. He does it all the time. You know what he's going to do. You know, you just know what's about to happen here. Except maybe we don't. Because it tells us that Jesus doesn't answer her a word. He completely ignores her. He completely ignores her. You know, some people are good at ignoring. My children, I don't know why this, I'm not saying they're good at ignoring, although they, they hold their own, but the, uh, if we're out in the hallway after church and I'm talking to people, uh, at some point, I never actually decided this, it just kind of happened, I ignore my kids. If they say dad, it's not that I ignore it, I actually don't even hear it. I, I've somehow mentally I've tuned out because I see them all week, but I see you on Sunday. And so somehow in my brain, again, I didn't decide this, it just happens, they say dad, 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 and I don't hear it. But they've figured out a workaround. They say, Pastor Ben, and then I turn immediately, right? And it's clever and unfair, but they figured it out and it works, right? <laughs> I don't mean to ignore them, right? I just, I know that I, I'll see you for the rest of the day. These people I see for an hour on Sunday morning, and I want to focus on them. Jesus doesn't miss her. It's not that Jesus somehow doesn't hear her. He ignores her and answers her not a word. That should startle us. We should be saying to ourselves, that doesn't sound quite right. That doesn't sound like Jesus. A number of years ago, I may have told you this story before, a number of years ago um, at my parents' church, I uh, had some issues with a group of people. A group of people had moved to the church together and together started raising a ruckus about a couple silly issues. And my dad, as one of the elders, went, went over to meet with them. Can we sort this out? Can we work this out? Can we you know, come to, to peace and, and harmony here? And uh, I wasn't there. I don't know exactly how the meeting went. But afterwards, when they contacted and talked to the pastor, they said, you know, John came to our house, and he was, he was harsh. He yelled at us. He was bullying. And Mark said, that did not happen. And nobody in this church will believe that that happened. John has been in this church 30 years, and he's never been harsh, yelling, or bullying at anybody. That did not happen, and nobody will believe that story because you just know what a person's like. Jesus ignores this woman in need, and that doesn't sound like him. That story doesn't sound right. If it wasn't in the Bible, I'd say, I doubt that that is true. 
I mean, look at the next paragraph. We read it earlier. Great crowds come to him. They put sick people at his feet all day long, and what does he do? He heals them. In fact, the paragraph after that would suggest he'd been doing it for three days. He's healing people and healing people and healing people and healing people over and over and over. It's like an assembly line. It's like a factory, a mill. And then, and then there are people who come to him, and the disciples like, uh, they're hungry. They're just hungry. They need something to eat. Jesus says, well, we've got to do something about that. But this woman comes, one woman with one child, with one miracle he can easily perform, and Jesus ignores her. We don't talk to her. If that's startling to us, it's supposed to be. But Jesus is going somewhere with this. If the story ended here, we'd scratch our heads and go, I don't get it at all. But the story doesn't end here. You know who wouldn't be surprised by that? The Jewish religious leaders, maybe even Jesus' own disciples, because that's how they customarily acted and thought about Gentiles. They despised them. They were, were practically subhuman. They were unworthy and unclean. You remember the story in John chapter 4? Jesus is in the Samaria, that kind of half-breed land of people that Jews hated, and they're traveling through to get up to Galilee, and they stop, and the disciples go to look for food or something. Jesus sits down and talks to a woman who is a Samaritan, and also we find out a serial adulterer. And Jesus engages her at length. And the disciples come back and find that, and they go, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why would you be talking to her? What's going on? But, but that wasn't a weird thing to them. What Jesus was doing seemed weird. We don't talk to these people. We don't talk to women, and we don't talk to women like that. It might not be that much of a surprise to disciples that Jesus ignores this woman. It probably wasn't much of a surprise to the, the first readers of Matthew's gospel, who were probably mostly Jewish. But this woman, she doesn't care. She is relentless. She won't stop. It's, it's become, she has become to them, it's kind of like, sort of white noise. You know, if you, maybe you sleep with a fan. You just kind of want that calming, steady noise. It just drones on in the background. This morning I was working down in the basement, down at my little table way in the back, and right behind where I sit is our furnace, and the blower's right there, and it's loud. And Evie came down and said, doesn't that bother you? I said, no, it doesn't bother me one bit, actually, because it's kind of a calming noise, and I can't hear you when it's on, or any of your brothers and sisters. So I actually very much like that white noise. It, uh, it pleases me, and I think I'm going to go upstairs and turn the fan on to on, from auto to on, so it just stays on while I'm down here. She has become like a white noise, but it's not soothing. In the background is this constant, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. And the disciples finally say, would you please send her away? Please send her away. She's driving us nuts. Now, they might mean... Hey, just can we run her off somehow? Can we kind of harry her out of here so we don't have to put up with this? But, but 12 grown men don't need Jesus to help them do that. Probably what they mean is, would you just heal her daughter already so we can be done with this? And now we start to get to the place Jesus, I think, wanted this to go the whole time. To the conversation he wants to have and the point he wants to press on his disciples. He says in verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. Hey, this is outside my purview. I don't have any jurisdiction here. This isn't, this isn't what I was sent to do. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we see that imagery frequently in the Old Testament. God's people are like sheep scattered without a shepherd. The kings of Israel are, are scathingly indicted because instead of caring for God's people, God's sheep, they abuse and use them. Jesus, I sent here for them. But the woman comes again, kneeling before Jesus. Lord, help me. So he takes it up with her. He says in verse 26, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The imagery is, is pretty clear here. I suppose our family is sitting around the table, we're getting ready to eat supper, and our dog walks into the dining room. Now, this story would be better if we actually had a dog, but you can let me press the illustration for a moment. So our dog walks up, and he looks hungry. And I, Owen's sitting next to me, and that's where he sits, and, and I say to Owen, look how hungry that dog looks. And Owen turns, and I take Owen's plate and dump his supper on the floor. And the dog runs over and jumps on it. And Owen's, what are you doing? Then the rest of our dogs come running in. And I dump all the other kids' food on the floor. And the kids are like, we're hungry. I love spaghetti. Where's my garlic bread? I want to eat. And I say, the dogs are hungry. And you'd say, no, that's not how it works. What are you doing, Ben? You don't take the kids' food and give it to the dogs. Now, I know some people who probably would. They love their dogs. But in general, certainly in Jesus' day, the dogs are on their own, man. Dogs can take care of themselves. They can run around scavenge and find something to eat. The food is for the family. In Jesus' words here, there's no mistaking what he's talking about. The Jews are God's children, God's family. And the Gentiles, like this woman, are the dogs. If that sounds deeply offensive to our modern, politically correct ears... Well, it was pretty offensive then, too. It was pretty offensive then. Dog is never really a compliment. And what Jesus is saying, totally in line with what his disciples and other Jews believed, is that the promises and blessings of God were for the Jews, not for the Gentiles. They're dogs. Jews get favor and blessing. The dogs, the Gentiles, get judgment, and that's what everybody deserves. And Jesus points this out to the woman, but of course she already knows that. She knows where she stands with Jews. Here's the thing, though. Jesus calls her a dog, but she's not proud. She's desperate. She's not proud. She's desperate. So she says in verse 27, yes, Lord, but, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She doesn't argue about whether or not she's a dog. She doesn't demand and say, you owe this to me. I deserve better treatment. I deserve the blessings and favor that everyone else gets. She doesn't get offended by what he calls her. She just points out that most masters aren't going to deny the dogs the scraps that hit the floor below the dinner table. 
It's not. They don't scoop them back up and say, no, no, my kids need this. There are enough crumbs to give the dogs their shot. The children will receive all that they need and all that's coming to them. And Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter is healed instantly. What happened here? Why did Jesus decide to do this for her? To give her what she asked for. Not because she agreed to convert to Judaism so she wouldn't be a dog anymore. Jesus doesn't ask her for that. She doesn't offer it. He doesn't do this for her because she tires him out like she did the disciples and he just wants to be rid of her. We wouldn't admire Jesus for deciding to heal her just so he didn't have to deal with her anymore. And I rather suspect that Jesus' initial ignoring of this woman was always to get to this place and to make this point. Jesus gives her what he asks for because he's gracious and she possessed great faith. Nobody else in Matthew is said to have great faith. The only person that comes close is Matthew 8. A man comes to Jesus and says, would you please heal my servant? And Jesus says, okay, I'll come. And he says, no, you don't even have to do that. I, I have people that work for me. All you have to do is say the word and you'll be healed. And Jesus says, well, I haven't found faith like this anywhere in Israel. Do you remember who that man was? Centurion, a Roman, a Gentile. The two most striking examples of faith in Matthew, non-Jews, Gentile dogs. Look back, though, for a second to Matthew 8. Just a few pages back. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, that's the centurion's reply, he marveled, he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, notice this, I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus sees a great shift coming in God's redemptive plan. For a very long time, the clear understanding was the descendants of Abraham, and Isaac and Jacob, the Jewish people, that nation, that race, will inherit God's blessing, and everyone else will not. Jesus doesn't say that the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are now invalid. No, they're still valid. God's promised blessings are still coming. But the people who inherit that blessing in relationship, that won't be based any longer on race or ethnicity or background. It will be based on faith. People who come to Jesus in faith. What matters is not where you come from, but who you go to. What matters is not where you come from when it comes to God's blessing and favor and salvation, but who you go to. It doesn't matter if you were born to the most privileged, elite, religious family centered in Jerusalem right next door to the temple or whether you are 
a Gentile dog woman from Tyre. It doesn't matter where you come from. It matters who you go to. That's good news. Because the truth is, some 2,000 years later, you and I are all, I think, Gentile dogs. We'd be on the outside looking in. If the disciples learn anything in the story, it'd be the answer to this question, who can come and draw close to Jesus? And the answer is, anyone who comes in faith. What encouragement there is to us in this passage to come to Jesus. He will receive us, regardless of who we are, what we've done, or where we come from, when we come to him in faith. Maybe today you need to come to Jesus in faith. We can come to him not because we have earned the right to do so, not because we bring a resume, a pedigree that entitles us to an audience in favor, but because he has sent his own son. All the obstacles that keep us from him, our sin, Jesus has taken on himself. That's why we have to go to him. He's taken the punishment that our sins deserve. He's taken them willingly, out of love onto himself so that we could come to him in faith. There are lots of other lessons we could draw from this. Let me show you real quickly four brief thoughts that J.C. Ryle mentions. He says, look, faith sometimes can be found where we least expect it. Jesus and disciples don't travel, at least the disciples, they're not traveling to the region of Tyre and Sidon to look for great faith, to look for godliness. That's not what they expect to find there, but they do because God is working and God will bring great faith in places we might least expect it. That might be true of people you know, people you love and care about, where you'd like to see faith and you're not seeing it. That doesn't mean it won't happen. That doesn't mean it cannot happen. We often see faith in the places we least expect it. God seems to delight to use faith and to teach the least from the least likely places. You know, it, it occurs to me that as we think about how skeptical we can become about faith of other people who we want to see come to faith, that sometimes for some of us, we're skeptical of our own faith. We have significant doubts of our ability to really trust God and follow him wholeheartedly. To which I would say, again, what matters is not where you come from or how you started, but who you go to. Faith sometimes is found when we least expect it. Ryle says also, affliction sometimes proves to be a blessing to one's soul. If this woman's daughter is well, she doesn't come looking for Jesus. She's not looking for the son of David. She's not looking for the Messiah because her life's going really well. Well, there, there are lots of, lots of questions, deep waters there, but the, the reality is sometimes it's the hardest afflictions, the, most, the greatest difficulties we face that, that compel us and move us. God uses them to move us toward Christ. We don't want them. We don't wish for them. 
and we don't ask for them, but God may give them to us precisely to move us to the place we need to be to find the strength and resources that we need that we would have never looked for otherwise without that need. Finally, what encouragement there is here to persevere in prayer. She is relentless. She will not stop. She doesn't demand. She doesn't say, you owe this to me. She doesn't say, why do you heal everyone else but not me? She's just insistent. Lord, help me. Help me. Help me. Have mercy on me. God hears that prayer. Oh, that we would be just as relentless. Humbly, earnestly asking God to accomplish his will and his good purposes in us and for us and through us. Father, I pray that you would teach us the lessons of this passage, of your love and concern and plan for all people, that you are not respecters of persons, you're not respecters of, of races or categories of people, but that you accept everyone who comes to you by faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that are also concerned for this, that we would be eager to see even some of the le what would seem and feel to us the least likely people come to you and find your salvation and blessing and life. Father, we, we need much help. We need much help in this. I pray you'd make us persistent in prayer. I pray that you would give us grace to persevere through difficulties, knowing that you'll use them for good. And I pray that you would grow our faith in you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for coming this morning. It's been good to be here with you. Let me send you out with this word of benediction, 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Well, God bless you. Have a great week.